I got a message from the local admiral at uh, headquarters in Sydney, whatever you do, keep the press out. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple of public beheadings. In order to kill them, you've got to be a little bit angry. Not psychotic, but just angry. We could look down Frankfurt and see it on fire. Stuff blowing up everywhere. There will be no surrender. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst we got children. Clean, you know, going to I could never often. not go back. They were my friends and screamed. they felt the top She did say, you've changed. Soldier put everything on the line to help one of our blokes. Ian Richards was a Rear Admiral in the Royal Australian Navy. Angus Horden spoke with the 40-year career naval veteran about his war service and life at sea. Ian, welcome to Life on the Line. Thank you. Ian, where were you born? In Adelaide in 1930. When you grew up in Adelaide, what was it like in those times in the Depression? It was a very simple life. I get somewhat annoyed these days when people say what a marvellous country it is today with the indication that it was terrible in those days. But it wasn't. It was a very happy life, a very honest and simple life. I think the 1930s, despite the Depression, was a great period. Ian, I understand that your brother served in the Second World War And before we talk about him, do you have any other military history in your family? No. my Well, my other brother, of course, was uh, served in New Guinea. He was in New Guinea, in fact, on his 17th birthday. He lied about his age in order to get into the army, and uh, my father wouldn't sign the documents. So he joined the chocolate soldiers, as they used to be called, the chocos, and then transferred to the permanent army, and he was in New Guinea for his 16th birthday. Let's talk about your brother, Bob. He served in Bomber Command in the Second World War and he was killed when he was shot down. Can you tell us a bit about what happened to him? I have no idea of the circumstances of his actual loss. He is buried in the Wargrave Cemetery in a little village called Batapalia, which is not far from Salerno. Beautifully kept, I must say, row upon row of 22, 23, 25-year-olds and an extremely sad and heart-tearing place to be. Ian, you've given us a typed transcription of a letter that Bob actually wrote to you, dated the 20th of July 1943. This letter is quite revealing about Bob's feelings and the routine of his job. Can you tell us a little bit about this letter? It was written in pencil. My father had what you, what you have there is a copy which my father had typed up. The interesting thing about it is the reading between the lines without a great deal of sensitivity. You can detect the fact that he was bloody frightened and with good reason. And he wasn't a warrior by nature. He was very much like my son Huey, actually. Uh, I think Huey is almost as uh, my son is is near enough a carbon copy of my brother. And I I wish I knew more about just what happened to him. But unfortunately, that's lost in the annals of history. And sadly, of course, that letter was only sent literally days before we lost him. Yes, it was. How did your brother's death actually impact on you as you were growing up? Not very much. I was 12 year old, so it didn't impact on me greatly. I can remember my shock 
walking into the kitchen, I could tell you exactly where the telegram was that said, we regret to inform you. And of course, in those days, there were a lot of people got those sort of telegrams. It must have devastated my parents, but I think I was too young really to appreciate the depth of the loss. The following year, 1944, you actually enter the Royal Australian Naval College. Can you tell us about that? I can tell you about the entry, uh, yes. Uh, when we all got in a bus in Melbourne, 16 of us, I always wanted to go to sea, and I wonder whether these poems that one reads about the, the call of the sea, there's something atavistic there that bred in me a desire to go to sea, and I don't think I had any knowledge in those days that whether I was going to be an officer or in, uh, in a war situation or a peace situation, I just wanted to go to sea, and my parents very kindly and I think very sensibly gave me my head. There was a, a number of tests to get into the college. There were, I think there were 800 applicants that year for 16 places. And of course, it was, it was wartime. So the services, a military venture, was very much sought after in those days. Then going into the college, personally, the toughest time was the first year at the Naval College. The level of rigidity and discipline was such that if it occurred today, if some school or establishment was found to be operating that way, there would be a royal commission. It was not brutal, but it was terribly, terribly harsh. You were beaten three times a week, roughly on the average, and once a month, because you were a terribly slack group of fellows, you'd have what was called a general, a general punishment, where you got six or a dozen on the backside from a dunny brush. Some of the fellows who were wheeling the dunny brush were first-class cricketers, You'd see the whole 16 of us with a, a nice rectangular backside for a week or two afterwards. Yet it was all, all recorded, it was all put down, and uh, for some reason we, none of us rebelled against it. Ian, let's go to your training, and you're posted over to the UK. Yes, we left in the end of '47, as was the practice in those days. We went overseas for four years. That was a, a marvellous experience for a 17-year-old to spend four years wandering around the world in the grey funnel line. And, of course, you start your training, and during your training, the war ends. That's right, yes. I was at the Naval College. I can remember doubling across the parade ground. It must have been 7 o'clock at night when we finally got the word that uh, the war was over. Your training took you to exotic places, let's say, in the West Indies, I mean, the Baltic Sea perhaps less, but you served on ships such as the Devonshire, the Belfast. Can you tell us about some of those experiences? Yes, uh, the Devonshire was uh, the training cruiser full of cadets. Uh, that was a very well-run organisation. Foreman, we had a four-month training cruise uh, around Norway, Sweden, uh, and the Baltic, as you say, and a four-month cruise around the West Indies. And following that, I joined the Belfast in Portsmouth. We went to the Far East and spent, or I spent something like 15 months in the Far East in Belfast, when China was a very different country to the one it is at the moment. It must be lovely for you for when you go back to England and if you take your family that you can actually go on board the Belfast in the Thames and actually relate to the fact that this was your ship and um, that must be special for you. Yeah, oh, it, uh, I love the Belfast uh, and I take my family and show them where I slept and I'm very proud to be the Vice President of the Belfast Association. Ian, in January 1950, you were promoted to a sub-lieutenant and you then commenced your specialist training at Greenwich. Oh, Greenwich was a marvellous time to be a 20-year-old on the fringes of London with a great spirit of camaraderie and a great privilege to be living at the, uh, at the Naval College. 
to have breakfast in the painted hall was really, really quite something. If, if you have, I don't know whether you've been to Greenwich, but the painted hall is the most beautiful place and the chapel, of course, is exquisite. So we were very, very lucky to be living in that wonderful environment. Ian, we've all suffered seasickness at certain stages at sea. Did you have any particular bad bouts of it? Oh, yeah, shocking. I wouldn't dream to claim uh, the virtues of Nelson, but one thing we did share in common was that we both got terribly seasick and a uh, towing a couple of years in a little ocean rescue tug called the Sprightly, which used to tow barges and so on up to Manus and back. And the trip from Sydney to Manus and back was worth half a stone at least. But finally, after a brutal period, I can remember going across the paddock, as it was called, in Victoria, which gets very lumpy in Bass Strait and across the north of Australia. But uh, finally, my intestines got used to it and it didn't bother me after that. So Ian, what was your first Australian ship that you actually were posted to? Oh, Warramunga, when I got back to Australia. So we're talking about the old World War II tribal class destroyers. That's correct, yes. And the Warramunga actually saw a lot of service in Korea. So can you tell us about your work when you were up in career with the Warramunga? Yes, I was the postal officer. I was very important. I learned the importance of mail to morale because we were in Sasebo and uh, the fleet mail officer, I'd gone over to collect our mail and the fleet mail officer said, I've got some mail for Concord and Comus, I think it was, a couple of RN destroyers that are up on the gun line and uh, could you take them? I said, yeah, surely. So I took them back on board and put them in the chart house and rather forgot about them. And a few days later, Jimmy Ramsey, Silver Jim, Captain Ramsey, uh, Commander Ramsey as he was then, uh, said, uh, Sub, uh, did we have some mail for uh, Comus and Concord? So I said, oh, yes, uh, yeah, I think we did. Yes, 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 it's in the chart house. And he said, I see, Sub, and when do you think you thought you might deliver that mail? And then I was a bit nonplussed, shall I say that, and I could see the storm coming, and he tore me to shreds. <laughs> I think that in an age today where everyone communicates automatically with email, if you were on board a ship and you're just doing your routine, the mail that you had was their connection with home. Oh, vital. I mean, he, he was absolutely right to tear me to shreds. Can we talk about what Warramunga was doing with regard to its operations around Korea? Three different tasks, as it were, we had on the East Coast were occupying in, uh, in interdiction fire, shooting up trains, particularly shooting up tunnels to try and disrupt the, the rail system. We spent quite a lot of time around a little island called Yangdo, which uh, was held by a US Army colonel and a couple of hundred uh, South Korean Army. And uh, it was about a mile, uh, two miles offshore. It had recently been unsuccessfully invaded by the North Koreans. And our task was to all night to fire a star shell about every 15 or 20 minutes to illuminate the area between the island and the mainland to protect any oncoming craft. There weren't any as it happened. But that was what we did on the East Coast. On the West Coast, we were uh, occupied as safety ship for the carriers. Glory, I think it was, and Theseus, and I think Melbourne were flying operations over the territory off the coast, and we were the rescue destroyer usually. We supervised some of the South Korean patrol boats. In fact, coldest night I've spent on my life. I spent sleeping on a uh, on a park bench in a Korean winter, which is pretty chilly to say the least, because uh, I was offered the opportunity to go down below 
But I was there, incidentally, to make sure that they just didn't anchor and all go to sleep for the night, which is what they tended to do if they weren't supervised. So I was there with a dizzy rank of sub-lieutenant trying to happily persuading them that they should continue with their operations. Uh, I was offered the opportunity to go down to the accommodation down below and uh, occupy somebody's bunk. But the kimchi smell that came up from below was uh, enough to turn me off. So I spent the spent the night sleeping on a pub or lying on a park bench on the patrol boat. And it was a very cold night. Ian, you mentioned the weather. I understand that those Korean winters were absolutely bitter. Bitter, but beautiful. They were crisp, clear, very bright. In fact, the weather off Korea, it was pretty acceptable. It would occasionally get rough. I can remember a soldier we had on board who was reveling in the joys of life at sea. We used to take soldiers occasionally to sea just to give them a break from the front line. And uh, we took this soldier to sea and he was saying what a soft, easy life we all had until we ran into a bit of lumpy weather and he decided he wanted to go back to his slit trench. The Korean climate was very benign as far as we were concerned, apart from being bitterly cold. Ian, you mentioned that Warramunga did a lot of naval gunfire support and you were supporting operations on shore. Were there any times where you received fire? Yes, when we were uh, up off Chongjin, and the, which is on the northeast coast area of, of Korea, the USS Missouri was due to come in and bombard with its 14-inch guns. And a few days prior to that, we had a group of minesweepers which were sweeping to make sure that there were no mines uh, where the Missouri was going to come. And our job was to ride shotgun on the minesweepers in case shore batteries opened fire. And I can remember where it was a beautiful day. We were flat calm and everybody was uh, at action stations having action messing. And uh, I can tell you now that it was boiled eggs for lunch and we were all up on the bridge quietly eating boiled eggs and suddenly around the ship little puffs of water suddenly appeared. And it was amazing just how quickly boiled eggs were put down and tin hats were put on and we got the hell out of it. <laughs> the, shore, but, uh, the shore batteries didn't do us any harm, but uh, uh, we then responded and counter battery fire against the shore batteries. So if we then jump ahead a bit, you're then posted to Tobruk in 1955 to 57 when the Malayan emergency was on. Yes, that's with Peter Peake, who was a, a great naval officer, by the way, uh, one of my heroes. And we spent a lot of time up in the Malaysian Reserve not doing anything terribly exciting in that area. But as you, I'm sure you know, the Navy really didn't get involved greatly in the operations in uh, Malaysia. There was some bombardment of communist positions that you assisted with. Was there much more other than that? No, not really. Ian, can you share a particular story that happened on board the Baku? We were surveying up, up on the Barrier Reef. One of the things that you do when surveying is to erect very tall bamboo poles on islands in order to give you a reference with horizontal sextant angles so you can chart exactly where the ship is. And in order to put those big 40-foot poles up on the top of the island, it's probably a two or three days walk uh, with a whole crew of fellows cutting their way through the jungle. But then on this particular occasion, we had this marvellous new invention called a helicopter. And the helicopter would just lift one or two people with the pole, put it on top of the island, and uh, the whole thing was done in a matter of half an hour instead of a matter of several days. And on this particular occasion, after lunch, I was about to go off and put a pole on the top of Brown Mountain, 
in Queensland and my captain, who was a very large man, Joe Hardstaff, said, no, pilot, I'm going to go. So off he went and he went with the first lieutenant, who was also a very large man. And on top of Brown Mountain, they came to the unfortunate situation that you don't want in a helicopter, which is hot, high and hovering. And she was hot, high and hovering off the top of Brown Mountain and she just sank into the trees. And the first lieutenant ended up in hospital. The captain was severely injured. And I was left with my first command, HMAS Baku, which I enjoyed for a day. So perhaps we could then talk about Vendetta and specifically about the incident concerning the cargo ship. Oh, yes, the Runic, which is a sister ship of the Gothic, which was uh, the royal yacht of the time. Uh, Runic had been left, I think it was uh, left, left somewhere in Queensland, heading for New Zealand. The captain had his wife on board for the first time in his life, and she was sailing. The chart at the time said that the currents, I've forgotten which way, but we'll say the currents normally set from the north to the south at two or three knots and so on and so on. And there was a little phrase at the end, but occasionally they go the other way. Anyway, the captain had obviously not read the, the last bit of the wording and the runic at 15 knots went straight up on Middleton Reef. And she's still, I suspect she's still there today. She was never removed. We were racing up and down offshore, you know, close offshore to try and put a big wake in to see whether she could float off. But uh, she'd gone up a ship of that size doing 15 knots. She was stuck. She's there forever. Ian, if we go forward again to another incident, I understand that you were there with regard to the Voyager and Melbourne collision in 1964. The commander at the Naval College was called to Canberra to fill out some, some work. I'm not quite sure what it was. And I was sent to the Naval College to relieve him. I was waiting to go to the States for Perth, so I was free. And I took over from him just for a few weeks. And that was the, the night uh, I can vividly remember it. I was just being called out by the captain of the college because uh, the cadets were having a, an initiation, which he strongly disapproved of. And he was again tearing me to shreds. And I said, I'm terribly sorry, but I thought you knew about it. And at that moment, the alarm for the rescue craft, which are right next to the Naval College, went off. And that was the start. And of course, we then found out that the Melbourne had been in collision with the Voyager. A lot of them came up, were brought ashore. One of the interesting aspects of that, and again, looking at modern times versus those times, I got a message from the local admiral at headquarters in Sydney, whatever you do, keep the press out. And I got a message from Tony Eggleston, who you may know of, who was a much less well-known fellow those days. He was a brand new fellow with this, uh, this new idea of public relations, which nobody had heard of in the Navy. And he rang me up and said, whatever you do, let the press in. And it's the only time I've ever flagrantly disobeyed an admiral because I let the press in. I said to them, you can have freedom of the Naval College. Uh, we will do everything possible to let you do what you want. I ask for two things, no photographing of dead bodies and do not wake any sailors that are asleep or resting. They were true to their word, and I was told later, I don't know whether it's true or not, that the treatment of the press would have been one of the terms of the Royal Commission if it had not been for the way they were treated at the Naval College, because the rest of the Navy blotted them out. And it's extraordinary that you can think that people would think you can sink a destroyer, but you don't want the press to know about it. And did you hear from the Admiral again? No, I, never, I, never, I didn't get roasted by the Admiral, actually. 
Ian, after that terrible accident, you then have a couple of postings in the 60s and 70s. Can you share some of those experiences? 64, I commissioned the Perth. I must say that was a, that was a great privilege. She was built, as, as you probably know, in Bay City, Michigan, and uh, I spent eight months looking after the pre-commissioning details with the then-captain Ian Cartwright and uh, sometime in Bay City, sometime in Boston, Massachusetts. Then we commissioned in Boston, went down then down the East Coast progressively, did our missile firings off San Juan, Puerto Rico, came through the canal, then to Long Beach, California for our post availability, and then back across the Pacific to Perth, then to Melbourne when my captain did the dream thing of any executive officer. He got an ulcer and he was invalided off the ship. So I had three or four months in command of Perth, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Very grateful to him for, for getting himself taken off the ship. And how many hands were you responsible for as skipper? Oh, 300. I think Perth had 330. 300, yeah, 30, 330, give or take a few. And in particular, I recall that you enjoyed your time on board Stuart. Oh, yes, that was the highlight of my life. We had a very good team, particularly in the second year. We did some very good firings at the Pacific Missile Range in Hawaii. We did very well with the Arakara firings. We did some good shooting. And I'm very pleased to be able to say that we won the Gloucester Cup that year for the most efficient ship. It was a joy to have command of a ship in the Navy is the richest experience anyone could ever hope for. Ian, around this time the Vietnam War is on, what was your involvement in the war? I had a period of about three weeks, which was possibly the most interesting time of my naval career. I was captain of Stuart at the time, and we were doing a, a maintenance period in Singapore, and the US Navy offered an invitation for a senior officer to spend a couple of weeks looking at operations by the US Navy in Vietnam. And uh, since I was the closest fellow available, I was sent to Vietnam to spend two weeks with the US Navy. And I was very, very impressed. They were very professional. I can still remember a young sub-lieutenant on board one of the destroyers I was on. I thought putting it into beautiful words to say that it is not our task to interpret what we should be doing. It is for our government to tell us and for us to get on with what we're told to do. And I thought that was a great attitude. I had a time on board a carrier, a destroyer, a minesweeper, a rescue ship, a support ship, and I, I got great admiration for the Americans. I imagine it really would have enabled you to appreciate our little Navy and the vastness of theirs and how they're such a great ally for us. I'm an absolute disciple of the US-Australian treaties and affiliation, and I think that affection between the US Navy and the Australian Navy is a very strong bond, and I believe, from all I hear, that the current navies, both US and Australian, treasure that friendship and maintain it. Ian, it's interesting you say that because if you look at the three services in the Second World War, the Army, Air Force and Navy, it was the Navy that had the greatest involvement with the American Navy. We dispatched our capital ships, Australia and Shropshire, with your ship, Warramunga and Arunda, our two tribal class, and they were attached to the American 7th Fleet. And they were the guts of the fighting power of the Australian Navy in the Second World War in the second half. So to your point, you know, the best of the Navy was always with the American Navy. And you're quite right, that continued more so than any of the other services, if you think about it. Oh, I, I think the bond, not in any way to 
denigrate the Air Force and the Army. The two navies had a much closer tie, partly because the physical activities of, of ships are to work together. So it's much easier to work together with uh, anywhere you like, whether it be off Japan or anywhere. Ian, as the years progress, you have a number of increasing senior appointments. Let's talk on two in particular. Firstly, in 1982, when you were promoted to Rear Admiral. Yes, Chief of Joint Operations in the Defence Force. That was a very interesting time. And I think perhaps my looking back and trying to think of contributions I've made, I think one of the things I tried very hard to do and, and in fact succeeded in was to get the Army to think more mobilely. The Army used to do all its exercises on the East Coast. And I said, this is nonsense. If we are going to do a, an exercise, exercising the, the Army, Navy and Air Force, we've got to do it somewhere where the transport is difficult because the, uh, the hard task will be supply, maintenance and logistics. So that was the first year which we held the kangaroo exercises off northwest Australia. That made it a much, much harder, much, much harder task with very different requirements, different needs and the, the logistics uh, were, were the big issue. Then on the 31st of October 1983, you become the Deputy Chief of Naval Staff. How was that? That was a plum job, yes. I really enjoyed it. The day-to-day running of the Navy for the, uh, the Chief of Navy, David Leach was my boss, and uh, that was a great challenge. I'd done an economics degree because I was impressed by Sir Arthur Tang, who had an economics degree. And I thought what he... I, I listened to him arguing with various people, particularly... Uh, senior defence, Navy, Army and Air Force people. And I thought he has a way of framing his ideas, a way of putting his point, which lets him win arguments when I felt that the the weight of the argument was in favour of the services. But uh, Sir Arthur would win the argument by the way he managed to put things. Also, that showed up in my time as Deputy Chief when uh, restrictions of finance dictated what we were going to do. Ian, you've been with the Navy for four decades, but you've also in that time had an opportunity to start a family. Can you tell us how you fit your family into your service? A different society in those days. It was perfectly normal for you to go off for 10, even 11 months, leaving your family behind. And naval wives, including my wife, was still a fantastic job of bringing the kids up Of course, there was a great network amongst the wives. The Navy itself was nothing like as good as it is today in caring for families and and caring for their people. But even so, there was a great camaraderie amongst the people. My children's mother got a, a job in New Zealand and carried the burden of loneliness. And Ian, after all this service, when do you eventually retire? In 1984, I left the Navy. My wife and I were going, well, just before that, my wife and I were going round skiing. And she said, here's a job for you. The Churchill Trust, the Winston Churchill Memorial Trust, wants a CEO. That'll be a, a good thing for you to do. Anyway, I, uh, I applied and uh, got the job. So I spent 16 years running the Winston Churchill Memorial Trust, which was a great privilege. And this is after four decades of service in the Navy. That's right. So that's quite a life. That was quite a life. I was very lucky. Ian... It's an incredible career. Looking back on all this extensive service that you've done for the nation, what lesson would you hope to someone listening to this podcast could take from it? Goodness, that's a very difficult question. 
I suppose uh, if you want satisfaction and enjoyment's the wrong word, but uh, fulfillment from life, if you can find a task which enriches your your life and enriches the life of others, maybe in offering them security, maybe in offering them wealth, maybe in offering them health. If you can find a, a career which gives those sort of things to people, then I believe you'll finish your life, as I do, feeling very, very enriched and happy. Ian Richards, thank you very much for your service and for sharing your wonderful story of decades and decades of service to our nation with us today. Thank you. My pleasure and thank you very much. If you liked Angus Horton's conversation with Ian Richards, we have some other Navy episodes you may enjoy from our previous seasons. For Navy officers in particular, listen in Season 1 to Number 4, Guy Griffiths, Number 6, Ivan Ingham, Number 8, Sarah Turner and Michael Wright, and Number 11, Andrew Robertson, Volume 1 and Volume 2. In Season 2, check out Number 26, Alison Norris, Number 32, Peter Jones, and Number 40, Rothsay Swan, and Angus spoke with Vice Admiral Ian Knox earlier this season. And if you haven't, you must listen to last year's special miniseries, Life on the Sea, published in November. Engage more with Ian Richards' story by finding us on social media, at Life on the Line Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, and at LOTL Pod on Twitter. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. On our website, you can also subscribe to our e-newsletter to never miss an episode. You can also find us on Podbean. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening. And lest we forget...